are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. Our guest today is a licensed psychologist, both clinical and health psychology, and ordained clergy person. She received her bachelor's degree in psychology from Spelman College and her master of science and PhD in psychology from the University of Florida. She also received a master of divinity degree degree from the Candler School of Theology at Emory University. Today's guest has served as a psychologist in university counseling centers, clinical director in interfaith-based counseling center, and as director of a university psychology clinic. In addition, she has served as a minister of education and associate pastor in local churches. Our guest draws on her knowledge of human potential from her experience as a psychologist and ordained clergy person to support the psychological, spiritual, and physical well-being of all people. Through her first-hand knowledge of life as a wife, mother, musician, professor, clinician, and minister, she has the insight to support the needs of adults, including performing artists, clergy, and health professionals. We are very excited to welcome to the show Dr. Vicki T. Gaskin-Butler. Thank you. I'm so excited about being here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Okay, so I've done my part. You guys, go ahead. What? (laughs) (laughs) Zach, you're going to have to edit that out. (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah. Mic drop. (laughs) Ian's done. He's going to go home now. Oh, you are home. (laughs) Yes. Uh. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> it's nice to have you with us, Vicky. Um, do you and Ian want to, or both of you, want to share a little bit about like your connection? How did you meet? Um, and how did we get, you know, how how did we get to this moment where we get to have you on to talk to you and ask you about, you know, the work that you do? Okay, so I can tell you my side, and I think Ian should tell you his side as well. <laughs> so, it sounds good. My husband introduced me to Ian via email, but before that, he told me about Ian and he said, he's really cool and he's doing some really cool stuff and I know you'll be interested in it. And so he told me about your podcast and he told me about the fellowship you had. And uh, so then I started being nosy and looking around (laughs) on the internet (laughs) and trying to find out who Ian was. And my husband said, yeah, I told him about you and y'all should get in touch. And um, I think he'll, he'll, he'll be a good guest on your podcast, which I thought was great because now I want all of you to be guests on my podcast. (laughs) Just, just so you know. And uh, on your podcast. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> you want to plug your podcast? I just started it. It's called Healing the Human Spirit. Mm. Nice. And it covers any topic, literally any topic that's salient for human beings. Um, because I, um, I've said this a million times, but for me as a psychologist and a clergy person, I use my dad's phrase that I heard him say when I was like in high school or middle school, inextricably intertwined. (laughs) Psychology and religion for me and spirituality are inextricably intertwined. And so the podcast is really about all kinds of things that affect our human spirit and how we can use any occurrences in our lives to help us heal. Whether those things are quote unquote labeled as good things bad things or in between when when could people expect the first uh episode actually the first episode happened a month ago because i launched before i was ready (laughs) 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 nice (laughs) and my my husband was my first guest and he we talked about um gosh we talked about the coronavirus science the coronavirus and religion so we talked about those three topics because he is a science educator and an yeah. undergraduate degree in physics. So we have lots of interesting conversations around that. Yeah, I bet. And it, it's so fun to to talk to people who who cast those wide nets, which sounds like that's exactly what you're doing in your work and with the podcast is like, Everything that matters for human beings and human flourishing. <laughs> Let's just tackle it all. So that's great. 
<laughs> My favorite um, topic, though, is science and religion. I, uh, so I'm going to try not to be too heavy on that. <laughs> science, religion, and spirituality. Oh, we invite that. <laughs> I mean, be heavy you on can that. jump That's... right into yeah. that. That is literally what this podcast yeah. is about. Be heavy so. on that today. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to, I do want to cover lots of other things, but that, as you can see, I'm here today with you. It's my favorite. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm excited to hear more about that. Um, uh, Ian, was there anything that you wanted to share about y'all meeting? Yeah, so um, uh, Vicky's husband, Malcolm, and I have known each other for several years since we're both science educators. And uh, we got to know each other in one of our professional conferences um, and just would stay in touch. Um, and every time we'd see each other, we'd sit down and hang out and just talk and catch up and stuff. And um, then he um, became or was one of the finalists for the dean position for at my college, the College of Education. And ended up getting the job. And when he um, came on the interview, um, I was actually, we were going to be recording an episode while he was there. And he was really interested in the podcast again because he knew about it. And then that's when he told me um, about Vicky and said, I think you all need to meet because um, you guys have similar interests. And so when Vicky and I met, and we've only met like this one time, um, and you know, I remember after I hung up, my wife was in the other room and she knew that I was meeting with Vicky and she's like, wow, you, you guys hit it off beautifully. And I was like, yeah, that was a lot of fun. So, um, so I knew we had to get her on. And yeah, as I've said before we were recording, I think Vicky and I, once they move up here in a couple months are going to become good friends because she just has a lot to offer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ian texted um, all of us almost immediately and like, like he had just met the president or something. And he's like, yes. Oh my gosh, you have to meet this person. She's so wonderful. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I was tell, I was sharing some of the things you mentioned and um, everyone was like, Oh, well, I'm in, we got to do this. And so, <laughs> so, um, so yeah. And it was just neat. You know, it's fun for me, you know, with Malcolm getting hired and, you know, um, as my next dean to have a science educator as the dean. Uh, but then to realize, you know, and I know that uh, Malcolm is a person of faith as well. Um, but then when he introduced me to Vicky and your areas of interest and expertise, um, I just knew right away we'd, we would get along well. So, yeah. That's awesome. I'm happy to have you here. It's exciting. Yeah. Uh, so, so Vicki, I guess the first, the first thing that I want to ask about your work is maybe more of a general question, just so you can say a bit and like, let everybody know, you know, what it is that you do, um, generally. So do you just want to tell us, uh, like what it means to, to do this work as a, a clinician, like the kind of intersection of your various roles as a, a clinical psychologist and, um, you know, your work in uh, religion and spirituality, um, like what what does that look like for you? What are your research interests? And um, yeah, anything that you want to share about that to get us started? So when I was talking with Ian, I told him I call myself a womanist psychologist of religion. And why is because I did my... PhD in psychology before I went to seminary because I had never had any intention of going to seminary. <laughs> and if any of you know about some clergy people, it's like, uh, never doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, it was, I, even though I grew up, I grew up in a, a religious family uh, in terms of there are so many people who are clergy in my family that I would start giving you a list and there would be too many of them to name, <laughs> but um, including my dad. And as a result of that, I figured there were enough clergy people in my family, so they didn't <laughs> need me to be clergy. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> needed me to be clergy because they had it covered. <laughs> so... <laughs> I wanted to become a psychologist, and I did. And actually, it's pro partially from witnessing my dad doing his work. And and I'll tell you just a quick quick story. I let's see. When I was in elementary school, I would go to work with my mom because my mom worked next door to our house. Literally, they built our house 
behind the nursing home. The nursing home was our family-owned nursing home. And so when school was out, I go over there sometimes, but we were there every day, literally, just about every day except for weekends and then sometimes on the weekends at the nursing home. So anytime I could not go to the nursing home, I would go to work with my dad. My dad was the director of, uh, let's see, I think it was a day program. I think that's what they called it. It was the 70s. <laughs> so a day program for youth who had some kind of criminal background. They might have gotten in trouble be, and, it, and it may have been related to drugs as well, but it was a drug treatment program, but they also may have had some other offenses, right? And so I would go to work with him and witnessing his work with those, um, they were all teenagers. They seem much older to me because I was in elementary school, but witnessing his work with them made me want to become a psychologist, but I didn't have the language to know that that's what I wanted to be. I didn't know it was a was called a psychologist at that point. And because of that experience, and there's so much that goes into that, and if you want to hear it, I'll tell you later, but uh, because of that experience, I, I watched my dad work with them. I watched them and the way they communicated with each other and how my dad and the other people who worked in the center facilitated that communication. And so even communication that would seem negative or hostile or whatever you call it, that wasn't good for an elementary school person. (laughs) Then I also noticed that they were just very honest with each other and they would walk away from those interactions more connected with each other not angry, not upset, not hostile. They were just more connected. And and I said, I want to do that when I grow up. I want to work with people to help them have those kinds of honest relationships where you can communicate freely and not run away when there's some kind of difficult interaction. And so that's why I wanted to become a psychologist. Um, still didn't have the language for it at that point. And then I have to say that in my life, I the church was always such a part of life, just going to different things. But the church was more like a community center to me in that our church was a community church that helped so many um they built apartments for low-income housing. They had a credit union. There were all kinds of things that that church did. And I just noticed those things growing up. And I thought, this is really cool. This is what the church is supposed to be, to help people. And for me, um, I just had a good experience growing up, learning all those Bible stories that some kids didn't care about, but I love them. And I I really wanted to be like Solomon, wise like Solomon. And I was, I still remember learning about the story of Solomon and the two women who were fighting over a baby. And Solomon said, okay, cut the baby in half. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, this kid, what, what? <laughs> and I was like, is he going to do this? You know, the suspense. And then, of course, <laughs> then he did not. The woman whose baby it was said, no, don't do it. And the other woman said, yeah, cut it in half. And Solomon said, okay, now I know whose baby it is. And I thought, oh man, I want to be like that when I grow up. I just wanted to be wise. I wanted to be like Solomon as a kid. Quick follow up question: <laughs> yes. Have you ever had to threaten to cut a baby in half? No, I have not. Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness. Thank goodness. And and just for the record, I would not use that tactic at all. <laughs> I would find another way to figure it out. <laughs> That's kind of going the nuclear option right away. Like, <laughs> right. I was like, whoa. <laughs> but I was just impressed with that. So I thought, okay, I want to be wise. And those like those mm-hmm. critical things just stuck with me 
throughout my life and training. And then fast forward all the way to becoming a psychologist. And I was in practice for about four, three, actually three years out of uh, graduate school. And I was in this church and working with a group of women and we had this group. We all wanted to meet. We were all the same age. It was really funny. We were literally the same age. We were all like 30 to 32 <laughs> uh, and dealing with life and having children and all that stuff. And and we had this group get together and I ended up becoming the leader of the group and bringing together resources that we would study together and all that stuff. And I've ended up being like the pastor of the group. And uh, (laughs) from that experience, that's when I decided to accept my call to ministry because I thought, okay, it's not going to be me just donating, quote unquote. My idea was to donate my services to the church as a psychologist, but I also realized I could do the other stuff too. Um, And so I accepted my call, went to seminary, and then seminary, I learned that I was a psychologist. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And and I say that because my friends are terrible. They're really terrible. And if they're listening, y'all should know y'all are terrible because (laughs) (laughs) they're not really terrible. They're my friends. But. I had this aha moment in one of my classes as we were getting near the end of the process in seminary and getting closer to graduation. And I said, oh, my God, I'm a psychologist. I'm a psychologist. And they were like, yeah, we know we've been getting free therapy this whole three years. (laughs) (laughs) But. What I mean was I, I've always known that I could do all the local church stuff because I, I learned it growing up. It was a part of my mm-hmm. life and in my daily life, especially from, I don't know, almost birth, but a, a part of my life. So I knew I could do local church. I could run a church. I could do all those things. I could do parish ministry. But in seminary, what I learned is I really... I just would say the world is my pulpit because I I look at the intersection of psychology and theology for me, and it helps me to really relate better to everyone, anyone and everyone I encounter, even the people that might be difficult. Um, And I mean, I was challenged in so many ways, like the... I think it was the Timothy McVeigh. Y'all remember Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City? Okay, so I was in a class and we were talking about Timothy McVeigh and and we were wrestling with uh, how does God feel about Timothy McVeigh? And we uh, came away with it like, well, God? probably loves Timothy McVeigh, even though he may seem unlovable to all of us. He did something very awful, awful, right? Something that was so harmful and caused so much pain. And we were like, okay, so if God loves Timothy McVeigh, God loves everyone. And then we went to lots of other historical figures that were pretty awful and um, awful in my, my, <laughs> in my estimation. But um, those are the kinds of challenging discussions we had in seminary. And those are the kinds of things that helped me to become a better psychologist in being non-judgmental and more understanding and more loving and more kind, kinder, just to help me figure out, okay, often when people come in my office, they're in a difficult spot and they've had some really difficult experiences. And it's my job to help them 
to see themselves, even though I don't necessarily say it this way, but to help them see themselves as God sees them, in my estimation. Mm. And so that's the work I do. I really try to help people see themselves for who they really are and not by all the labels that are placed Mm. on them. So anyway, that was a really long answer. (laughs) Great answer. And I guess a a follow-up question that I have um, immediately, you know, when when you uh, identify yourself as a womanist psychologist of religion, like you've talked about the pieces of like where the psychology comes in, where the religion comes in for you. But can you talk a little bit about what it means to do that from a womanist angle and just, you know, uh, considering that there's probably... Uh, many people who will hear that and not necessarily know what that means. Like, what is it to be womanist versus feminist? And how, like, how has your journey with that identity kind of unfolded? Okay. So also in seminary, I realized I was a womanist. um, And it was basically because of how I was reared by my mother, father, aunts, uncles, you know, extended family, grandparents, all of that. And so Alice Walker coined the phrase, womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. And so I was taught by a lot of womanist scholars. And and I can't say a lot of them. I read a lot of their work, but I was taught by a couple of them. And so... Theologians, African-American women theologians took on the label of womanism or womanist because they read the stuff, which is interesting, the stuff my dad read in seminary was Black Theology by James Cone and and others. He kind of was the founder of Black Theology. And... So those women were reading it and they were saying, well, we don't see ourselves in this literature. And so they started to read and write and interpret scriptures and life experiences from their own perspective and not trying to read themselves into what was being written in Black theology and in feminist theology. And so... I say for me, I live in the intersection every day of race, class, and gender, which is what womanists do. And so for me and womanists, we say those three things help us, race, class, and gender help us to relate to many different people who have many different experiences and our role, our job, if you will, is to use those experiences to help others. So living in a, let's see, living with both privilege and (laughs) oppression at the same time puts me in a different space than some other people who don't necessarily have both privilege and oppression. They're really living Um, with oppression. And so as a womanist, my goal, my role is to help elevate others, whomever they are, not excluding anyone. Um, And so how I do that or how I've done that is in psychology, one of the two of the ways in particular because of the things I like to do and learn about, um, I was able to pull psychology of religion into my work with others and multicultural psychology into my work with others. And a special piece of multicultural psychology actually is religion and spirituality. And not I shouldn't say not too many, but some psychologists aren't that comfortable dealing with those two topics. So I really help my students explore those things and I, you know, allow and enable my clients or patients to do the same. So I don't know. Did I answer? Yeah, no, I I think so. And I I think it's it's just um, 
helpful for people to hear because like the my first encounter with um like womanist scholarship was in grad school and it's not you know i think that that's something for for the person who's kind of on the outside of grad school in general or you know just reading like totally different genres of stuff it it just is um there's not a context often i think for people to know what that means so i think it's helpful hmm. the way you frame that as being you know uh, about like uh caring for people at the intersection of uh race and gender in particular and, and class as you added um and and i think that that's that's interesting uh to like the the intersection of identity as like a womanist psychologist of religion, um, I want to ask you just about that a little bit more because um, a lot of my a lot of my own research is in psychology of religion, and so there's um, there's a pattern in uh, psych of religion uh, just to kind of share for for people on the outside, and I think we may have like brought this up a couple times before, but a lot of the the demographics of people who are studied in psychology research, I think in general, but it also extends to psych of religion, is it's the weird problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's that all a lot of the people, the pattern is for them to be Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And so I'm I'm wondering, like you, Vicky, are sort of situated. Uh, in a way where like the stuff that you do, and I also, I tried to do a little bit of stalking of you on the internet and <laughs> uh, found your CV and, you know, the work that you do um, is really like resisting that pattern of uh, weirdness, the acronym of the weird <laughs> in psychology research. <laughs> and um, I just, it, it's really, it's really cool to see that, like filling, filling a gap in um, a lot of the the pattern of like who gets studied and who gets brought into um to work and research on psychology and so i'm just wondering like can you speak to that a little bit like how how does that uh what are the kinds of things that you notice in your own work that seems to like resist maybe like wider patterns that you see in publications in psychology on you know, on stuff that you do or like, you know, how is that, how does that feel different, I guess? So, <clears throat> excuse me, one thing I wanted to say, I just thought of it, so I'm going to answer your question, but yeah, yeah. I, it, it just occurred to me again that when I told you I did that group with the women in the church mm -hmm. and that led to my call, the funny thing was the first book we used was written by a womanist theologian in which she translated the, she's an Old Testament or Hebrew Bible scholar. And so she translated these different passages in the Hebrew Bible, interpreted them, and then wrote a book to get other people to think about that. And so... <laughs> That womanism and I'm foreshadowing of you becoming a womanist. Yeah, what which, which book was that? <laughs> but anyway, so <clears throat> so let me talk a little bit about training because I spent many years doing training of students, and so where I find this intersectionality is when we look at who becomes psychologists, right? So I've now worked in a training program in clinical psychology. Most recently, I worked in a training program for mental health counselors, school counselors. Yeah, mental health and school counselors. And then prior to that, I worked with students who were in clinical programs as well or pursuing a social work degree or counseling psychology degree. So um, those are the, so this is the frame of reference I'm thinking about. And what I found is for me as a womanist, it's, it's my calling, if you will, to make sure that students are learning about how to work with all people. Not that we'll be experts at working with all people, 
But we do really need to pay attention to the people who come into our offices, whether it's a Zoom office or whether it's in reality, you know, face to face. We need to be able to look at all of the cultural issues that surface. Right. And what I know from my own training is I didn't learn that. I taught it to myself, honestly. And that's how I became this person who does multicultural work. I taught it to myself in graduate school. And as a result of that, then I did the work while I was in graduate school. I was hired to do that work, working with multicultural populations uh, in graduate school. And then it just kind of followed me until today. And so I was engaged in the work before I knew it was called womanist work. (laughs) Uh, And so that's a, a key thing for me in training that I really work hard at helping students understand as much as they can about the different factors that affect people that aren't necessarily taught in the textbooks, the the hmm, traditional psychology textbooks. And I'll say traditional because in traditional text, there's not a lot of cultural diversity that's discussed in the traditional texts. But then there's always the separate multicultural Traditional, a.k.a. white. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Traditional white. And so many college students or, you know, middle class, you know, you just said it weird. And so uh, so that's one of the things I've done. And I in terms of my teaching, that's one of the things I've enjoyed the most and also has been the most difficult at the same time. (laughs) <laughs> because it's challenging when I'm the first person to bring all these things up and somebody goes, what? <laughs> you mean race does have an impact on health? Yeah, it does. <laughs> or <laughs> class has an impact on health? Yeah, it does. Physical health. Yes. You know, those kinds of things. And so um, covering those kinds of things in my courses, that's been really fun for me and really difficult. Um, but I wouldn't have it any other way. And then the other side, in terms of research, if you looked at one of the last things I did uh, before leaving USF St. Petersburg was working with a group, well, one of my colleagues, Jamie McHale, who is a zero to three expert, zero to three age expert, developmental clinical psychologist, but early childhood development And I joke about it. I say he roped me into doing that work with him (laughs) because I was reluctant. I was like, I'm not an expert in zero to three. I'm not an expert in zero to three. And he said, but you're the person I need to do this work because he was trying to develop a co-parenting intervention for first-time parents of African-American children and first-time parents together. And so, again, that's womanist work because... Most of the people involved in the study were low-income African-American parents, and we worked together to develop a curriculum and uh, an intervention program to help them learn how to better co-parent their children. And I say children because often it, they might have been having their first child together, but they had other children. And so one of the byproducts of the research was that not only did they do better with co-parenting the first child together, but it also helped them with co-parenting issues with other parents, um, you know, that they had been connected with previously. So it just pops up all the time. I don't really think about it. I just... I just live it. I yeah. think. Yeah, no, that 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 makes sense. And it's um it it makes a lot of sense too to hear you talk about how a lot of the methods that you, you know, draw on to do the work that you do, um, it ends up being self-taught for a lot of people. And uh that's that's interesting and like of course challenging because it's like (laughs) you have to kind of be the one to pave the way for that to be more of the standard um i'm curious about how you know i i I noticed that 
and it looked like this might have been, I can't remember when this was, but you, you've you done some like research and presentation on like religious coping. Is that right? And so mm. it, you know, it doesn't have to be like religious coping specifically, but like what is your experience of uh, religious identity with things like race and gender? And how do, how do those things come together in your work, especially since you have this um, interesting background where you did do um, an MDiv and that's, um, you know, that gives you a lot of valuable experience and exposure to literature and, and care for people. Um, but, you know, it's like a different way of applying that kind of training in, in research. So just, yeah, what, what could you tell us about that? So my work with uh, religious coping, that was ooh, a long time ago, my <laughs> dissertation. <laughs> but I did uh, teach psychology of religion for many years. And I have to say, uh, my students would ask, one student in particular asked me, how did I teach the course? Because I was a person of faith and she knew it. Everybody knew it. But I taught it in a way that it, I, I taught it as a psychologist, really. I wanted people to understand that there are many different ways of looking at religion and spirituality, and it's not all helpful <laughs> in terms of how it's applied how religion and how spiritual things are applied in people's lives. And so as psychologists, our job is really to help people utilize religion and spirituality in a way that's healthy for them. That's that's our job. Our job is not to change people's religious beliefs or any of that, to get them to believe or not believe any of that. It's really to help them understand the role of religion in their lives and figure out how it can be used to help them. And so, so my dissertation, oh my gosh, I just laugh every time I think about <laughs> what were my findings. So in this when I was doing the research, I was in the space of, oh my gosh, it's got to be this internal experience of the divine that makes people, you know, better people or makes them cope with life's difficulties. And then I laughed because what I found is what psychologists already knew is that it's not that. It's not really that internal thing for the group that I study. It's not really that internal uh, relationship with the divinity or with God that matters most. It's really these, it was called extrinsic social religious coping. And what that means is people go to uh, mosques, people go to temples, people go to religious services of different kinds or participate in religious bodies, not because of that divinity uh, internal to the, you know, up, up relationship. It's the gathering around. It's the connection with other people that matters most, in which psychology, we call that social support. And that's one thing we know that works. Social support helps people. So I did a dissertation to help us find out what we already know. <laughs> well, is there anything special then about like uh, people who reach out to their religious organizations for that sort of support? Or do you see the same kind of su coping being from book clubs and Zumba and CrossFit or whatever people are into? Honestly, with the dissertation, yeah, it's it's the same. It's mm. it's just that there when people are gathered around something, whatever that something is. So it could be the religious thing, it could be Zumba, it could be the book club. What matters is the connection with the other people. That's the that's the, that's the biggest thing. And now for because Okay, how do I say this delicately? Because sometimes when people <laughs> gather with religious 
groups or people, the last thing they talk about is religion. <laughs> Sometimes they do. You know, if it's if it's a Bible study or, you know, a religious themed gathering. But what we found is these these people will connect with each other beyond that. And the religion, religion was the thing that brought them together to connect. But it's not necessarily the thing that keeps them connected. It can be those other things like these same people might be in book clubs and other things like that, too. But social support really matters. Now, I'm not saying that religion doesn't matter because that's the thing that brought them together in the first place. Yeah, we're all watching the clergy person's facial expressions right now. Like, Zach. (laughs) I just. Religion still matters. I wish that that wasn't. I wish that wasn't borne out in my experience so keenly and the sort of thing that all us clergy people talk about all the time where they're like, why are they even coming? What? They don't care about this. <laughs> they're here for the cookies. Ugh. <laughs> I'm like, all right. So nobody comes to the Bible study, but 100 people come to the chicken barbecue. All right. Then, okay. This is, <laughs> we should just open a chicken shop. <laughs> So you do like some organizations, you have the chicken barbecue and Bible study together. Ooh, there you go. Solutions. You get them in the door. You have to quote a Bible verse in order to get your chicken. That's that's how we do it. It's gonna be Jesus wept. Oh, or what is it? Ecclesiastes ten nineteen is that what it is? The uh, food was made for laughter, and wine gladdens the heart, and money answers everything. <laughs> my life, it's my life first. <laughs> <laughs> Did I answer your question, Kendra? Yeah, no, I just yeah, I I and my question might have also been a little bit rambly because there's just so like I I love listening to people talk about like psych of religion stuff. And, and so, yeah, I just like anything that you want to share. I, I'm curious about the class that you taught uh, or that you, you taught or you do teach this still sometimes. I haven't or, taught it. I haven't taught it in five years now. Yeah. <laughs> I think, or yeah. wait, how many years? I'm trying to remember how many years it's been since I left USA. Oh, three years, three years. It's been at least five years the past year. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. That's at a good least, point. maybe 10. Uh, <laughs> so psychology of religion, I approached it as, um, so we we did a couple of things. I used two different textbooks. One was um, psychology of religion, and I can't remember the name of it, and I'm looking over here and I forget that's not my bookshelf in my other office. <laughs> <laughs> but it it's a very it's an empirical study of psychology and religion, right? You know, the yeah. empirical study. So I used that text and I also used another text that was a psychology of religion and spirituality that nah, wasn't empirical. It was really talking about a lot of Eastern religions and how helping students understand the meanings of those religions, symbols in those religions, that kind of thing, and how people utilize those religions in their day-to-day lives, right? But I also did something interesting where I threw in uh, William James, psychologist, who wrote The Varieties of Religious Experience and that book, the students were like, what is this? He's just <laughs> rambling on and on and on. What is he doing? <laughs> but I used it because I wanted them first to see a psychologist who emphasized religion in a way that they perhaps weren't used to. And so, and he had just had a lot of interest in life experiences, moving all over the place, moving back and forth from Europe to the United States and doing all this stuff. And then he was, of course, prolific in terms of writing and research and all that stuff. So anyway, I used that and I threw in stuff like, um, have you seen the video Religulous by Bill Maher? 
Yeah. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Okay. So I threw I that saw it a in. long time ago. Yeah, it's old, but very yeah. good. <laughs> I threw that in. I threw in stuff like what the bleep do we know? I threw in um see, and if I was teaching it now, I'd have them listen to your podcast too. <laughs> but I put in a lot of different things to give them lots of different perspectives about religion to help them understand that whatever their way is, is not the only way. Because inevitably, I'd have two camps in my class, every single class, the division, the people who are psychology is it. What is this? The religion is the opiate of the people. Like, this is ridiculous. And then I had the very religious students. And so... I would try to get them to come toward center a little bit, just to move a little bit to understand the other side. I, and I would, we would do debates on specific topics. And I would talk to them about the idea that what we're doing in this class is not to get you to change anybody else's mind. It's just to understand, try to understand others' perspectives. And inevitably, they would do that. Many of them, not all of them, because some of them would dig their heels in and say, you know what, Dr. Dr. Gaskin Butler, this religious stuff is just gone too far. I cannot, <laughs> you know, this is awful. Um, and I showed also one called Jesus Camp. Have y'all seen that? But I'm going to have to write down all these things you're saying because uh, I'm teaching this class in the spring. <laughs> yeah, I lived Zach, through that kind of thing. That with Jesus Camp, both in, in <laughs> yeah. the documentary and also living through stuff like that, yes. <laughs> yeah, it might hit too close to home for me to watch that. Yeah. <laughs> so I would show all of those things and we would have really rich discussions and related to the material we were covering in psychology of religion, especially on the empirical stuff. And then just looking at, so what is it that's, what is it about all of these things that's helpful to the people involved? What's harmful? If you see it that way, do they see it as harmful? Uh, psychologically speaking, are they okay? I mean, and and so we had lots of rich discussions about that. That uh, was my absolute favorite class to teach. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's so fun. What did you? What 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 was the topic that people that um, what was the topic that students got most worked up about, or what was like the favorite topic of the class? It wasn't a topic, but it was. <laughs> it was the whole course, and I'll say it this way. <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> students, were, students were really upset with me that I could not say the research definitively says this Ooh. about yeah. anything. Anything. <laughs> because I said, this is what we have, because psychology of religion is, it, it's still growing, right? But we don't have millions and millions of people studying this, right? But what we can say is this is what we know based on this research. And we went, oh, I mean, we covered so many different topics from clergy health to um, religious attributions and social psychology and all these different things. And, and they were just frustrated because I wasn't giving them definitive answers. I said, this is the research we have. And you have to look at this research and then look at the people you're with whom you're going to work and figure out whether this research bears out or not. And it might not. And if it doesn't, at least you have a foundation to use to approach the people. And so that was the biggest issue and on both sides, because students who were really religious, it didn't matter what their religious background was, because I had some diversity there. They really wanted me to just come down and say religion is great. It helps everyone. <laughs> and, you know, because I'm a believer in this, you know, particular faith tradition. And then the others wanted me to just say, Religion is awful and it doesn't help anybody. And I was like, yeah, can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's 
So that was a big deal. And I, that was, they were frustrated wow. the whole time. Wow. What if we could approach our, our, like our theology, our religion with that kind of a mindset where you're like, here's what the, here's what our, here's what scripture suggests and here's how it bears out. And does that work in this context or not? And if not, like what, where can we, how can we adapt? What can we do? Like, wow. What if that, just that worldview that you just put forward, like apply that to our faith journeys. And I feel like we would all be so much more mature. No, Zach, we need absolutes. (laughs) (laughs) No ambiguity. No room for gray. (laughs) Ambiguity is hard to preach. I'll tell you. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) Yes, it is. I think that's really... um, I, I imagine that there were days that that felt especially challenging to you as the faculty member, like teaching that class. But there's something so satisfying about those moments in class, too, where students, they know they're not going to get a clear cut answer from you and they're forced to sit in the ambiguity and you can just see the frustration. <laughs> but it's like a constructive kind of frustration of like you get the point if you can see why this is complicated. And that is like a job well done, I think, to like have a room full of students frustrated. <laughs> the One of the last times I taught the course, the students would leave class and follow each other down the hall and then go find a place to sit and talk and talk about mm. what we talked about in class and then come back the next week and say, you know, we talked about this. And then <laughs> just tell me all <laughs> I love that. That's said, awesome. Yay, I'm doing my job. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how many professors could actually claim that, right? That they would see their students, especially in that type of class, walking out and then continuing the conversations. That's that's really cool. So that was always yeah, the goal. Yeah. They didn't know it. They didn't know that was my goal, but that was the goal. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I, I have to be honest, I'm, you can delete this. It, it is fun for me to sit here and watch you, Kendra, ask these questions, especially as a... So, Vicki, I don't know if you picked up on this. This is Kendra's first post as an assistant professor, as faculty. This semester. Yeah. This semester. This is her very first semester as faculty somewhere. So she's planning so, her syllabi right now, yeah. talking to you. Yeah. About it. <laughs> yeah. It's really fun to watch her do this. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, maybe I should email Vicky later and get some more tips and tricks. <laughs> I will make sure you have her email. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it, I'm. Anyway, sorry. Carry I'm on, I'm really Kendra. excited, though. Like, I, I'm teaching psychology of religion in, in the spring at, you know, 8.30 in the morning. So everyone who's registered for that class like wants to be there, I think, because it's at 8.30 in the morning. And <laughs> um, and so I'm, I'm really excited. I think it'll be really fun. And it's fun to hear someone else who's taught this class, you know, reflect on that experience. Um, I, I'm wondering too, just, you know, like uh, in talking about religion um, and again, just considering like your your roles and your experience in on the more like spiritual, you know, MDiv side of that versus uh, your experience with religion as a psychologist. What do you notice uh, when 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 people read research or conduct research about religion? Religion becomes a variable in a way that sometimes, like, you have to kind of you know, we we as researchers, we make decisions about how to simplify religion to fit as a variable that you can like create, you know, find correlations with it, with various other, um, you know, demographic factors or whatever. Um, What are some of the challenges that you've noticed in uh, like simplifying religion in that way? And what, what's something that you wish people knew about studying religion as a research variable, if that makes sense. So what I noticed in, especially in teaching psychology of religion is looking at the, the way religion was operationalized, as you said, it's, it's, it's very difficult to operationalize. That was actually one of the exercises we did in class. Uh, We looked at words like faith 
What does that mean? Belief. What does that mean? And those kinds of things. And what I would say is psychologists of religion should be clear about what it is they want to know. And so if I want to know how religion affects, I don't know, cardiac health, then that's too big, right? (laughs) What aspect of religion are you concerned about? Is it something simple like church attendance? Is it something like... I walk in a group with people from my church. We have a walking group or, you know, that kind of thing. I think it it is belief in the God. Yes. Right. Belief in God. What what does it mean? And I think and I also think that's just so hard to do. Right. Because we're narrowing down something that's so big. But if you really want to answer some questions, I think it is important to operationalize, get it down to the more spe- the most specific thing you can think of that you really want to know about. Um, because that's what I noticed makes the, that's part of what leads to <laughs> that frustration with ambiguity. <laughs> because we could have 10 studies on how religion affects cardiac health and they all operationalize religion differently. And so what do we really know when we're looking at these 10 different studies? Well, we know it, it for the walking group people, they walk with their, you know, friends from the synagogue and they're good, right? Their their health is really great. But then we also know they probably eat more fruits and vegetables. Like <laughs> those are those <laughs> external variables, right? <laughs> Something else is going on there too. So, um, so anyway, I think that's, that's, one of the the bigger things. And I, that's a conversation that will, I mean, in terms of research, that's going to go on forever and ever, I, I think, because we really have to, to keep working at it. Um, and yeah, just trying to understand what we really want to know. And that that's difficult, but I think it's, it does help in the study of religion when we get to those specific things. So does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a great answer. And I think, you know, like what you're suggesting too about being very specific and narrow, I think part of that is also, um, it's like the responsibility of researchers, I think too, to be transparent about that in their publications about like, what are we actually talking about? Um, because then, you know, we end up like generalizing about religion based on this like very specific oper- mm. operationalization of it. Um, and so, yeah, like what you're saying at, at all, that all makes perfect sense. Um, oh, go ahead. I just thought of of um, one of the things that I'm interested in and just read some about not, not a whole, whole lot. It's just anecdotally. Prayer can be a helpful thing, right? It can be. And so one of my colleagues said, just looked at me with a frown. He was like, have you read this stuff? Prayer doesn't work. And so I added that to the course too, because there was another study where prayer wasn't helpful. So anyway, but there there's lots of books about how prayer is helpful, but it helps to define what's happening with prayer because sometimes people are praying in a way that increases their anxiety and then it's not helpful. And then there are other times where they're praying in a way that makes them calmer, makes them less depressed and, you know, that kind of thing. And so that I think illustrates what I'm talking about. If we're going to say we want to understand prayer and its impact on people, what kind of prayer you know, really be specific about that and 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 try to understand how it can be helpful mm. to to folks. Yeah, I think that's a great example. Uh, the exa- the the research on prayer, like that, that really does like hit on that point. Um, well, I I have a question that I think could be a good final question. Um, 
unless Zach wants to add something else. But I was going to say, um, Vicky, as we wrap up, like, what do you want to share or maybe like, or maybe we kind of did this in the beginning, so I don't know if this is going to work, but I was going to say, Vicky, what is it that you want to share with us as we wrap up about like work that you're doing right now? Anything that, you know, you're excited about that you want people to know about? Um, let this be a shameless moment of self-promotion of what you do. <laughs> can I Can I actually maybe make that question a little more specific? <laughs> So, you know, as I said at the beginning, you uh, and Malcolm will be coming to Charlotte. So what is it, uh, building on Kendra's question, what do you hope to do once you move? Like, what are your goals when you come to Charlotte? Yeah, that's a good one. And start anew. So, <clears throat> excuse me. I actually started working in private practice here, virtual private practice here in Florida, uh, just a couple months ago. And so I plan to get licensed in North Carolina and start a private practice there. But the funny thing is, I only want private practice to be a part of what I do. I don't want that to be my daily, like every day, all day kind of work. I really like working with groups of people. So here you will see how that pastoral kind of influence comes out of me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because I like working and doing things like workshops and retreats that focus on spiritual, psychological, and physical well-being. And so those are some of the things that I want to do in it'll be under the guise of my private practice. Uh I also have this other project that I'm working on. I won't give you the name of it yet, but <laughs> it's uh it's a news network. I want to develop an online news network. And um the the site itself has already been developed. We're just um needing to populate it with stories and stuff like that. So I had to put it on the back burner for a little bit while I got my private practice stuff up and running. But I want to do that as well, because I just I think that there are many ways to reach people. And I want to try to reach as many people as I can uh, in positive ways. And so my my news site will do that as well as my website. So uh, and one more thing. I'm also <laughs> working. I won't start, start, start. I've actually started writing, but I'm going to work on my first book. Starting working with the editor in January. Um, cool. Because we're doing something small like moving right now. <laughs> <And we're just laughs> yeah, nothing major. Here and and there. at some point you'll sleep, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. So I have a lot of things going on, but this is the thing. I always said I am a person that I chose to become a psychologist because I get bored easily. So I need to be doing different things, <laughs> have my hands in different pots, I guess. And so my career, I've done a lot of different things, but I feel like now this is my time where I'm going to do all of the things that I believe I'm called to do at this point in my life, which is writing and doing retreats and workshops and consulting and that network thing on <laughs> on the side so and a podcast that's pretty yeah. cool <laughs> yeah and a podcast don't forget your podcast yes and the podcast the blog and the podcast are on my on my it's going to be dr vicky website it's almost done i just have to add a couple podcast episodes and then we'll make it live. Yeah, but in the meantime, cool. when people are done listening to this episode, they should search in their preferred uh, podcast provider for the Healing the Human Spirit podcast. Um, with, And they should definitely subscribe to that and listen to the one episode that's up so far. Yeah. So exciting. Or maybe multiple episodes yeah, by this point. Yeah, I he's a decent guest. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you say, Ian? I, I said I hear I hear he's a good guest.
Yeah, your first guess. He's all right. No, you said decent so. the first time. I did say decent. You're right. <laughs> this is yeah. your future boss here. <laughs> you can keep that in because Malcolm will hear it and be like, yep, that's Ian. <laughs> He'll just laugh. He'll just laugh. I expect nothing less. <laughs> well, it's exciting to hear everything that you're doing, Vicki, and we're really happy that you uh, decided to talk to us today. So thank you for being with us. Well, thank yes, you. Thank for you so much. Me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited. I was really looking forward to this. And I have to say, I was a little nervous. I was like, oh, God, what are they going to ask me? (laughs) 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 Will I be ready? Will I be ready? And what, Ian, what did Malcolm, my husband, say to me right before this? He says, go have fun. (laughs) And it's been fun. Yeah. Well, thank you. (laughs) Thank you.